Let's look over to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's a very exciting day. Uh, Mother's Day, one of my favorite holidays of the year. I say that very seriously. I love the opportunity we have to uh, honor our mothers. Uh, certainly, I honor my mother. I honor the mother of my children. Uh, I do want to mention one thing. Uh, my mother is not here, but I want to mention one thing about her. There are many things that I could share about in uh, recognition, appreciation, and praise of my own mother. A lot of you know her. Uh, she is uh, regularly here. Her and my dad come for a couple of weeks every year around Christmas time. Uh, they're part of our sister church in Nashville. Uh, wonderful uh, Christians both. Certainly that's true of my mother. Uh, what you may not know is that my mother has been a strong Christian uh, really since she was a, uh, a little girl uh, growing up in the church uh, is certainly in my recollection and knowledge of her all the days of her life she has been very faithful to the Lord she has loved the Lord uh, she's been a great mom and a spiritual strength for our whole family I think that I, uh, I learned something from my mother that maybe uh, would be helpful to you as well uh, I was uh, not a child who necessarily followed the, uh, the faith as I, that I was taught when I grew up. Uh, I strayed starting around the age of 16. All you teens now, close your ears and do not listen to this. Uh, but about the age of 16, I started uh, drifting away from God, and it just got worse and worse and worse. And that continued until I was about 23 years old. And really, I was in graduate school, and God led me to the church there in Gainesville, Florida, and I eventually became uh, a Christian there. And not only that, I went into the ministry. Let me just tell you that if you'd have known me between the ages of 16 and 23, those were years of spiritual darkness, you would not have suspected that I would be a Christian in the future, much less somebody who was in the ministry. And so sometime later, after God worked in my life and I'm sure a lot of you can relate about God's grace and how he's worked in your life. Uh, when I realized, you know, and I look back at my life and I, I thought about my mother and I go, wow, because, you know, mothers have that special love for their children. Of course, dads, we love our children, but a mother's love is, is unique and special. And yet all during, as I thought back to that period between 16, age 16 and 23 in my own life, I don't remember anything about my mother that was different than the mother that she was before or the mother afterwards. She was seemed so cool and calm and collected and faithful. Uh, she loved me unconditionally. You know, she just seemed uh, very comfortable with me and where I was going. And I, looking back on it, I was kind of surprised by that. She didn't seem the least bit worried, stressed out. And so I, uh, after a while, years later, I asked my mother, I go, what was really going on there between the ages? I mean, you had to be concerned. You had to be worried. Yet I didn't really sense any difference in your love for me or your trust or belief in me or your vision for me. And she just said, yeah, you know, I, I, was, I was certainly concerned about the direction of your life. I said, so how did you, what did you do, Mom? How did you deal with that? She said, these four words, I prayed for you. And uh, that's, that's all she had to say. 
And uh, I suppose that's all that she did. And I think that perhaps if you're a mother in that situation today or you'll be a mother in that situation in the future, uh, that's a mother's love and that's something that all of us can do and certainly that's something that mothers need to do. And uh, it certainly was beneficial in my mother's case. Let's, uh, let's pray one more time and we'll uh, get into the lesson here. God, thank you for our moms again. Thank you for what they mean to us. We honor the memory of the moms that are gone today. We also honor the, mem- uh, the mothers that are here today. And uh, certainly we pray for them to be strengthened and encouraged on this special day. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's, uh, let's go to Second Samuel chapter 9. Did I say that yet? I did. Well, good. Well, you should already be there then. I don't want to hear excuses. Send you to talk to your mother. But anyway, Second uh, Samuel chapter 9. Let me give you a little context. We've been studying, of course, the life of David. Beginning in 1 Samuel 16, David was around 15 years old when he was selected by God, chosen to be the future king of Israel. He did not become king for 15 years, about the age of 30. From age 15 to 20, the first five years there, after slew Goliath, he was on a spiritual roll and things looked good, but then Saul became jealous. Saul began to persecute him. Saul was even threatening his life. So David fled from the king's court. And we know that for the next 10 years, roughly age 20 to 30, So he was fleeing, moving around the desert as King Saul and the men with him sought to kill him. During that period, we have said several lessons about that 10-year period. We see with David some incredible high points spiritually, and we've seen some incredibly low points spiritually. Do you remember those? A little bit up and down during that time. And, of course, the thing with uh, Nabal... You know, that was not a good thing. Uh, Abigail saved the day, or God used Abigail to save the day. Then, of course, we had that living in Ziklag thing. Uh, that went on for a year and four months. That was a perhaps the lowest period or the lowest period to date uh, as we've studied David's life. But then he becomes king, and First, Second Samuel, uh, he becomes king. As we pick up the story today, it is now 15 years down the road. Now, we, we sometimes don't realize how much time has passed, but it's about 15 years later. And all during this 15 years, it seems that David has flourished spiritually. There's a, the record of the Bible is that he's strong, that he's doing well. Certainly God is blessing him. He's the king. The kingdom is expanding. The kingdom is solid. The kingdom is blessed. All things are going good, and in 2 Samuel 9, where we are today, some would say this even was David's spiritual peak. Perhaps the story we're going to read today was his finest hour. How many of you are uh, familiar with the story of David and Mephibosheth? How many are? Raise your hand. Yeah, as as I thought, some of you are, of course. Many people do not know this story, and so that's pretty exciting. You may learn something new today. And perhaps even as we get into the sermon here and as we conclude, you'll understand why many would consider this to be David's finest hour 
spiritually. Now, the first thing we need to do is make sure that we can all pronounce Mephibosheth. I'm mostly concerned that I'm going to be pronouncing it correctly. It's a, it could be a tongue twister, and I'm going to have to be using this repeatedly during the sermon today. So if I mess up, I expect love and grace. But let's all say it together, Mephibosheth. One more time, Mephibosheth. Excellent. Now we read the story. Verse 1, 2 Samuel 9, we're going to read the entire chapter. It's a short chapter, and that will be our lesson for today. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and he was crippled in both feet. The title for today's sermon is Searching for Mephibosheth. The main point of today's sermon is letting the grace of God change you. What I believe that we see here in perhaps David's finest hour is clear evidence that the grace of God that had been extended to David had touched his life in such a real way, in such a powerful way, in such a practical way 
that he searched for Mephibosheth. What a picture of God's grace is really extended here. Making sure that we understand the story. Mephibosheth to David was either unknown or long forgotten. He and Jonathan, of course, had been best friends, right? We remember the promise even that David made to Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 20. I believe Marcel preached that sermon about how they would swore friendship to each other and to the descendants of their household, that they would be loyal and take care of each other for generations to come. And so David remembers his promise to Jonathan. And so he asks, is there anyone left from the household of Saul? Is there a way that I can fulfill this promise that I made? And we don't know. It seems like perhaps he didn't know that Jonathan had a son that was still alive, named Mephibosheth, or if not that, he had been long forgotten. So Mephibosheth, as we see, is living in a little place called Lodibar. Lodibar literally means no pasture. What was happening? This was a place east of the Jordan. He was hiding out. He was in exile. He was living in a barren land, a wasteland, a desert community, a small community. And his fear was understandable because the common practice would be if one king came in and replaced another king, what they would normally do was execute all the descendants of the previous dynasty. Are you with me right there? And so Mephibosheth was the only one remaining from the house of Saul. And he was the son of Jonathan. And so he, no doubt, is hiding out, living in fear. Then, as David had searched, first he goes to Ziba. He finds out about Mephibosheth and where he is. Then he sends the palace messenger to come get and come knock on Mephibosheth's door. You know, I don't know about you, but anytime somebody knocks on my door and I am not expecting someone, I get a little bit concerned. You know what I'm saying? Because you're wondering, who is this? Because I wasn't expecting anybody to come over. And what are they wanting? <laughs> I rarely find that people show up at my door, strangers, and knock on it because they want to give me something. Are you with me right there? And so the door knocks, and Mephibosheth opens it, and he finds out it's a messenger from King David. That's about like saying, I am from the government, I'm from the IRS, and I am here to help you. <laughs> this was not, this was not an exciting prospect. And according to the text, Mephibosheth is not told why he's being summoned to the palace of the king. And so he goes, and that's why when he appears before David, the first thing David says is, don't be afraid. Because understandably, Mephibosheth was, I am sure, concerned that his life might be soon coming to an end. Imagine how he feels 
when he finds out David's intention is entirely different. He says to him, I'm going to restore all the land that your grandfather Saul possessed. I have assigned Ziba with his 15 sons and his 20 servants to farm that land for you. All that wealth will now be coming to you. You'll be moving to Jerusalem. You won't be just in the neighborhood, though. We're going to move you right into the palace. You're going to eat at the table, my table, with the rest of my family. And I am going to treat you, what does it say? I love that. Verse 11, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Wow. As I said, what a picture of God's grace. What David understands and what we all need to understand, I'm speaking of all of us who have come to Christ, who have found salvation, what we all need to understand is that we were Mephibosheth first. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Do you remember living in Lodibar before you were baptized into Christ? Do you remember the barren wasteland? I remember Lodibar. It was a place of exile and separation from God. It was a place of pain. It was a place of frustration. It was a place of emptiness. Do you remember when you were broken and outcast and crippled like Mephibosheth? Spiritually, but God cared, yet God cared. And he came and he sent his palace messenger to find you at the time when you most needed him. Are you with me right there? It's interesting how God works, isn't it? What a beautiful picture here of how he extends his grace to us. God first moves in David's heart, then that goes to Ziba, and then it goes from Ziba to a palace messenger, and finally it gets to Mephibosheth. Can you, do you remember the palace messenger in your life? Do you remember the people? And let us, let us embrace the fact that no one person leads another person to Christ. There's always a group of people that God uses. I mean, even in my story, I believe that my, my mother had as much to do as anybody and my father with me becoming a Christian when I was 23 years old, even though they were not there at that particular time. Do you understand what I'm talking about? God uses people in our lives. Different places, different times. He's leading us. He's shaping us. And then he gets us to bring us on home. You know, I was thinking about a story that illustrated it for me so powerfully how God works. Is that back when we were uh, living on the we in West L.A. about 20 years ago, the, uh, a good uh, friend of mine became a Christian uh, there. His name is Steve Berger. Some of you may know him. Steve was in the uh, L.A. church for many years. He was a ministry for many years. 
And the story of how God called Steve went like this. Some sister that I no longer remember her name invited Dan to come to church. Dan was an attorney. Dan was married. Dan had children. And she brought him to church. Don't even remember her name. I invested. I reached out to Dan. She told me about him. I reached out to Dan. I studied the Bible with Dan. Dan came to church for a while. But Dan never became a Christian. Well, it just so happened, it was sort of in that period. I was still reaching out to Dan, still trying with Dan. And we had something that we used to do a lot in L.A. Some of you remember it. We had our annual L.A. Church of Christ Dodgers Night. Los Dodgers. I'm just, I'm just saying. Just being relatable. But we all went out. Remember those days? We should do that again. So we all go out, thousands of us. Big block of tickets. We go to the Dodgers game. And, of course, we wanted to use that to reach out. And so I said, you know, so I had, you know, a few extra tickets. And so I called up my friend Dan, who had been met by the unknown sister. I hope they don't put that on her tomb. But anyway. um, (laughs) So I call up Dan. I go, hey, you know. We got this Dodgers game tomorrow night. I think it was like the day, it may have been the day of or the day before. I go, you want to go, you know, the L.A. church is going. And he goes, no, you know, I can't go. But I got this friend that might want to go. His name is Steve. I said, well, I don't know Steve, but give me his phone number and I'll call him and ask him if he wants to go see Los Dojos. Am I, did I do well with that, Eric? Thank you. I got the thumbs up from here. So, so I call him. I don't know who Steve Berger is. I called him on the phone. I go, hey, I'm a little embarrassed, but your friend Dan gave me your phone number. I'm a minister in the L.A. Church of Christ. We got a Dodgers game tonight. You want to go? Sure. Tell me what time, where you live and what time to be there, and, I'll, and we'll go. He shows up. It was a Saturday night. He went to the game. I don't think he watched any of the game. He, uh, he was fellowshipping the entire evening. Uh, there were many brothers and sisters that he was interested in meeting. He got a good feeling for the church that night. Just a good feeling. Well, you know what? He came to church the next day, and he has not stopped coming yet for 20 years. That's the story of how God searches for Mephibosheth, how he found you and how he found me. See, God is the hero of this story. God, you, and you know what? In almost every conversion, I love hearing conversion stories, almost every one, you can see there's all kinds of people who have an impact. None of you could say that there's just one person that God used. There are many people who played a part. And so he came to Christ. Who was the palace messenger when God remembered you? I literally had somebody knock on my door in Gainesville, Florida in the fall of 1978. Ross McKenzie, who at that time was a young married and graduate student at the University of Florida. Now he is an elder in Atlanta. 
still faithful, live a few doors. Did I ever tell you I lived in a trailer park? <laughs> I, yeah, I was trailer trash. Let's just go ahead and get that. Let's just go ahead and get it out there. Grew up in Tennessee, living in a trailer park in Gainesville, Florida. Why not? Seemed like a good idea at the time. And I'm starting graduate school at the University of Florida, and I am, I'm, in, I'm in my greatest darkness. You know, I'm 23 now. I am, I'm as far down the road as I ever got away from God. And Ross McKenzie knocks on the door on a Saturday. Didn't know him, never met him. Invited me to go to church the next day. I said, well, how? I will sure go. I will go. He says, well, I'll pick you up at 9.30. I go, I don't need a ride. I have a car. He says, I'll pick you up at 9.30. <laughs> I think he thought I was one of those squirrely people that wouldn't show up unless they got a ride. So finally I said, okay, I'll ride with you. <laughs> Who was your palace messenger? God found us. And he worked through people to do that. What a picture of God's grace. Grace is when those who deserve nothing are treated as if they deserve everything. That's what happened to Mephibosheth. He was hiding out, exiled, outcast, and crippled. No hope, no future. Deserving nothing. Knock on the door. He who deserved nothing, he who had nothing, now had everything. He was given everything. That was the grace of God. But you know what you got to love about David is David understood that he was Mephibosheth first. David thought, I'm sure. When I was 15 years old and I was a shepherd boy, nobody thought I was going to be the future king of Israel. Right? Living in a small town, insignificant place, Bethlehem. Nothing special about his family. He was a son of Jesse. He was the youngest of seven sons. We have any of the youngest here? Yeah, you know, the youngest, they get all the hand-me-downs. You know what I'm talking about? Now, I was the oldest. So, you know, I was always the one who was handing down. But the youngest gets all the hand-me-down. He was the youngest of seven. Do you remember? You, can you imagine how old and frayed those jeans were by the time they got to him? You know what I'm saying? But here, he come, here comes Samuel to show up, of all things, to anoint one of Jesse's sons as a future king of Israel. And his own family, his own dad, doesn't even think it's worth calling him in from the field. You remember the story? David's thinking, nobody was thinking about me. And here I am now. Here I am now. And now, at this time, king of Israel for 15 years. 
He said, I was Mephibosheth first. I was the guy who deserved nothing yet has received everything. I hope we can renew our appreciation today for the salvation that we have received. The salvation that we have received, if you're a Christian today, is so rich. We weren't just rescued. We have been blessed. Do you understand the difference? I'm sure Mephibosheth would have been happy. He would have thought it was awesome if he had just found out that he wasn't the king's enemy and he no longer had to fear for his life. And perhaps he no longer had to live in a hidden life and live in exile. But God doesn't just rescue. He blesses us. He brings us into the king's palace. He brings us to the table. We are eating at the table of the king of kings. We're not treated as servants. We, like Mephibosheth, are now sons. You know, it was really interesting. Some would say that David already had enough wives and children. You remember the first lesson? I gave you an overview the Bible, we know that he had at least eight wives and at least 18 children. That must have been quite a family photo. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure if they were sending one out every Christmas, but I'm sure they needed a wide-frame lens. People probably saw the picture and they asked, was well, this like a big family reunion with extended family and aunts and uncles and cousins? No, that's just all my wives and my children. But you know, starting that day, in spite of all the children and family, immediate family, David, starting that day, there was one more picture. There was one more person in the, the family photo on the Christmas card, Mephibosheth. And you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking Mephibosheth had the biggest smile of all. <laughs> the broken, the outcast. The cripple who now had been brought to the king's table and was treated as one of the very sons of David. God did not just give him a pension. He gave him a place. Do you understand the difference? We're not just taken care of financially and our next meal provided for in Christ. We have a place at the table of the king of kings. We have a relationship. We have a father. We are his children. That is what you are. If you're in Christ, you're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. We, like Mephibosheth, sit at the king's table and the tablecloth of grace covers our crippled feet. We, who deserve nothing, have received everything. Let me speak to a moment, for a moment to those of you who perhaps are not yet part of the family. You're here today because God has worked in your life. He's reached out to you. He's used people. You've come 
Perhaps you've studied the Bible, you've listened to sermons, you know you're not yet right with Christ, you have not yet repented and been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And the question today is, are you ready to come and sit at the king's table? Is it time to embrace the invitation that the Lord himself has given you to become a child of God? Are there those here today that need to be restored to the fellowship? You were once, you were baptized and you were once a part of this fellowship or some fellowship and you were joyful and you were faithful and you were committed and you were consistent and you were obedient and you gave your life to Christ and you lived to the best, not perfectly, but to the best of your ability. You gave it to Christ. Yet, as the years have gone by now, you've drifted and you've gotten away from, away from the fellowship, away from God. You're no longer connected. You're no longer committed. Yet here here is our God. Here is our God. And he says, is it time yet? Are you ready yet to come and sit at my table? Come to my table. You'll be treated not as a servant, but as a son. Searching for Mephibosheth. David understood that he was Mephibosheth first. Do you remember our main point? No? (laughs) Letting the grace of God change you. See, we have another reason now. I said when we launched this study, we, I, I was as eager as you, I hopefully, were to find out why was David the man after God's own heart? Because his sins are so obvious and shocking. And next week, Rob Cosberg is going to preach. And it's going to be the story of David and Bathsheba. Spoiler alert. Now, I just want you to keep in mind, because this is going to be pretty dark. I'm sure you're going to make that into good news. But anyway, uh, you're going to help us. But again, it's just another illustration. I mean, David has been on a very long stretch where he's been doing really well. So let's keep that in perspective, you know. I mean, sometimes we want to, you know, identify David by, you know, his two or three worst moments of his life. Do you really want that about yourself? I don't think so. So David has been doing real well, but the point is, why was David a man after God's own heart? We've talked about several things, you know, because of his personal relationship with God, and, you know, you see that in the, his prayer life and the Psalms and all that. We've talked about how his repentance was so uh, exceptional and exemplary that even though he sometimes went periods of time without repentance, once he repented, nobody repented as good as David. He was a good repenter. That's all I wanted out of my children when they were young. I got one of them here, Robbie. Yeah, he's here. 
Uh, good, good son, showing up for Mother's Day. Uh, good job. But I'm telling you, you know, I knew my children wanted to be, we were going to be perfect, but I wanted some children that were good repenters. You know what I'm saying? David was so strong in how he would repent. You know, we talked about how he trusted God in such difficult situations and Goliath and Saul trying to kill him. And, but now we need to add one more thing to our list. Why was David uniquely the man after God's own heart? Because I'm not sure anybody that ever we read about in the Bible appreciated grace as much as David did. You know how, you know how we know he appreciated grace? Because he searched for Mephibosheth. Are you searching for Mephibosheth? That's our title today. You know, in verse 1 it says, David asked, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I could show kindness for Jonathan's sake? You know how that ought to read for us? If we're going to be like David? Is there anyone left for me to reach out and to love for Jesus' sake. David never forgot who he was and where he came from. That's why he would search for Mephibosheth. Love is more than a feeling. Love must be demonstrated. Who are you searching for? Is your search ongoing? Are you looking for Mephibosheth? Someone that you can reach and extend to the grace of God. You know, it's, uh, it is Mother's Day, and I want to mention one who has been such a special mother for us in this fellowship. Lee Johnson passed away almost exactly one year ago. I asked Tommy the other day, and uh, I believe it says May 17th. Tommy, where are you? Is he counting money? He's counting the church's money, and <laughs> I just want to make sure he's, you know, he's doing a spiritual act of service. Um, <laughs> But I asked Tommy the other day, and uh, he reminded me, I said, I knew it was about this time of year, May 17th, Thursday will be one year. And if you didn't know Lee Johnson, or if you weren't at the funeral, there was something unique about her that we all could learn from. So many people that came to that funeral and who went up and shared on the stage as they shared their appreciation for her, were people who called Lee Johnson mother who were not born in that family. And Tommy and Lee, I asked Tommy before church this morning, I said, it's really exceptional. How many people who, I mean, they had enough children of their own. How many children did they have? Like eight? Right? They had like eight children, all right? As if they didn't have their own. They were constantly inviting in 
for whatever reason, friends of their strange friends of their of their children to come and live with them. Even at one time, they, they had a homeless family that they found that lived with them for three months. I asked Tommy, I go, how many people lived under your roof for an extended period of time who were not your children, not related to you, blood, no blood relative in any way? He gave me the he, he first said, before church, he said seven or eight. Then he grabbed me, um, that was about, Tommy always gets here earlier, that was about 9.30. He said seven or eight. Then he grabbed me before church and says, no, I, I, I start thinking. I think it's more like 12 or 13. Then he came in, and we came in here to the auditorium. He says, well, I wrote down a list, and I came up with 18. In a physical sense and a spiritual sense, that's what God wants us to be. People who are searching for Mephibosheth. They may be a total stranger right now. Somebody unknown, but somebody that needs help. Somebody that needs the Lord. You know, there's a couple of things I want to mention and then uh, we have to close. I think, uh, I think we just have to be honest. Can I be honest with you? Thank you. We are not as evangelistic as we used to be as a church. If you've been here any amount of time, then that is just an inarguable truth. Why not? Well, there's a couple of things at least that we should consider. One is that we no longer appreciate the grace of God the way that we once did. We've forgotten. You know, this all, David's now... He's been king. It's been 35 years. Is that right? Am I doing the math right? It's been a long time <laughs> since God called him. Yet he never forgot where he came from. Have we forgotten the grace of God? Is it no longer touching our lives? Is it no longer changing us? Because when God's grace changes you, you search for Mephibosheth. The other thing I think, if I'm to be honest, is that a lot of us have done a lot of reaching out in the past, and we don't want to do it anymore because we're afraid we're going to get hurt. It's a risk that we're no longer willing to take. You know what I'm talking about? You share your faith. You invest yourself in somebody like my friend Dan. You spend hours and months and, you know, even money, and you're investing, and they never become a Christian. And you do that enough times, you go, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of extending myself, of knocking on Mephibosheth's door, and he don't want to come to dinner. Or even worse, stay with me now. You reach out to somebody, and they become a Christian. But as time passes, they leave. They're no longer faithful. Our hearts are broken. Sometimes people that were our best friends are not friends anymore. Sometimes people that we're friends with become even enemies. Not because of something we've done, but where they're at. And you go, it hurts too much. David took a risk when he invited Mephibosheth to eat at his table because 
if there ever was going to be a rebellion, and if there ever was going to be a revolt, he had invited the, the most dangerous person in the kingdom to sit at his table. You know what else? God takes a risk every time he knocks on our door. You don't think God hurts when we leave, when we sin, when we fall short? God's willing to take a risk. David was willing to take a risk. We need to be willing to take a risk. Let's search for Mephibosheth. Let's pray. God, thanks for this lesson. Pray that we can learn what we need to learn. Take it to heart and be inspired. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great Mother's Day.